Good morning. Uh, my name is Jeff Heiser. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity. We're so good to have you guys, particularly if you're visiting us. Or, um, we are um, starting a new sermon series today on the book of 1 John. So that'll be the next 12 weeks. We're excited about it. Um, much of the news this year has, um, you, if you've been paying any attention at all, you can, have not been able to get away from the fact that this year was the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. And I personally got really into it. And so I was listening to a bunch of podcasts and different things. And one of the ones that I really enjoyed was called What We Saw. It's about the moon landing. And um, one of the first things that the podcaster does is he spends some time dealing with all the conspiracy theories surrounding the moon landing. And one of the things he says is he's like, you know, when I hear people talk about the moon landing and say that it didn't happen and all these things, I just get angry. He gets angry because he's like, listen, I was alive during that time. I watched the rockets shoot off of Cape Canaveral. Like, I watched the development of the moon, the moon program, right, the space program, and I watched, my fa- the whole world watched. I was there as we saw our Neil Armstrong step on the moon on July 20th, 1969. I saw it. I experienced it. I was there. I was alive. It happened, Right? And he's just trying to convey that certainty that he knows that this thing, there's no doubt in this guy's mind, he lived it, he was there, he's positive that it happened. And that certainty is something of what the Apostle John is after for his readers in 1 John, right? He's, He's saying, I saw these things happen. I'm positive. You can know they happened because I experienced it. So this, this, um, the next 12 weeks, we're um, preaching on 1 John. We at Trinity, we like to spend, just kind of sit in a book for a while, right? We like to, to spend some time in it, marinate in it. Over, over the number of weeks, we try and um, unpack the whole book because we want to know God's Word really well. And so we spend time on whole books of the Bible, not just topics or current events or these sorts of things. We want to know God's Word, and we want it to guide us in our preaching. So 1 John is generally considered an epistle, which means it's a letter. It was a letter written to churches um, in the first century. But it doesn't quite have all the elements of a letter. It has a lot of elements of a sermon, and so it's kind of in this weird genre where we don't quite, not, can't quite nail it down. We're going to call it a sermon letter, right? The sermon letter of First John. And John wrote this sermon letter to, he was living in the city of Ephesus, not in Jerusalem anymore. He's living in Ephesus and he writes it to the churches in the area in, in modern day Turkey around the year AD 85. Now that's really important when he was writing it. Because the church at that time was experiencing some intense division, some intense um, confusion and uncertainty. You see, one of the re- and one of the reasons for that is because in, in the year AD 70, Rome had come and besieged Jerusalem, and they had sacked the city and destroyed the temple. Now, for a Jewish man like John... And the fo- many of the early followers of Christ, that was a huge deal. We've been studying, you know, this summer we studied the Torah. The first fi- the, the, we studied Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And what we discovered there is that the temple was absolutely crucial to the understanding, uh, for the understanding of, the self-understanding of Israel. Because in the temple, that is where God was. It's where they met God. It's where they knew God. And for the temple to be destroyed meant that God was not there. 
that God was absent, that God was gone. It was a huge, like we can't quite like understand how devastating that would be to Jewish people. But in the midst of this immense tragedy, you have John, and he writes this letter and, it, and is incredibly hopeful, optimistic, and confident. You see, for John, he had been con- become convinced that God was present with his people, but it was not in the temple. God was present with his people in the person of Jesus Christ. And so the certainty that the, this podcaster about the moon landing, right, he, he wanted for his listeners, that's the same certainty that John wants for his readers, that, that they would, he wants them to know that their faith was true, that the God of their fathers had not rejected them, that the God, that the Jesus Christ who they were putting their faith and their allegiance towards, who they were swearing allegiance to, it was in him that eternal life could be found. John understood that if Jesus was who he said he was, if that was reality, if that was real, if it really happened, then it, beca- then it must become the lens through which we understand everything. It is the basis of any certainty. Any certainty that we have about our faith either begins and, or ends with, the, with this idea of the incarnation. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Did God really become a man? Is that real? Is that reality? And if he did, what in the world does that mean for our lives? That is the, that is the um, crucial question of these first four verses of 1 John that we're going to be reading today. Um, and it's the question we're going to, we're, that we're going to just marinate in and think about today as we, as we study these things. And so I kind of have two points. Um, the, 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 this new reality, the first is the new reality that the incarnation brings in, the new reality, and the second is living in that new reality. The new reality and living in that reality. So, okay, with that in mind, if you are willing and able, please stand with me out of reverence to God's holy and perfect word. Um, this is 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Hear now the reading of God's word. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will abide forever. Please be seated. The reality of this new reality that the incarnation in this new reality, that's our first point. Sometimes, I know that I I certainly, I I often think of Jesus as more of a mentor figure and not so much as a friend figure. Okay, like I think, okay, yes, he taught, he's conveying wisdom, he's kind of on this different level than everyone else. He's not, I, it's kind of hard for me to imagine him giving himself in vulnerability to another person in friendship, right? He's a teacher, not a friend, right? But that's actually not at all the case. And we find in, in, the, um, in the Gospels, we find that Jesus actually had a best friend. He had a, he had a, a man that he was very, he was close and intimate with, and that man was the disciple John. The, the, the Gospels call him the, the, the disciple that Jesus loved. It was, it was John that when Jesus is hanging on the cross, he looks at John and says, hey, take care of my mom. Take care of my mom. Right? There's an intimacy that John had with Jesus that 
No one else had. There's a closeness, a friendship, a vulnerability, an intimacy that, um, that no one else had with Jesus. And so that means that John, he had personal knowledge about the, the facts and the, the, the things of Jesus' life more than anybody else. And that's the guy who wrote this book to us, right? John was the, the son of a fisherman, very likely um, poor, um, certainly by our standards, poor, probably somewhat uneducated. And he was one of the first disciples that Jesus called. But imagine, think back on John's life and just imagine you were him. You know, you, you start following this man um, who you're very drawn to. And you, and you go with him and some of other, his other disciples to a, to a wedding. And you're in that wedding. And you all kind of go into the back room because they've run out of wine. And he has these big vats of water. And Jesus turns them into wine before your very eyes. Or imagine um, you're John and um, you're starting, you, the, your relationship with Jesus has progressed. You're starting to develop this close friendship. And, um, and Jesus starts to claim to you and to other people that he can forgive sins as if he were God himself. Like this is your friend. Like you know him. And he's saying that he's God. Or imagine going with Jesus and um, Peter and James to the top of a mountain and all of a sudden, before you, your best friend becomes clothed in light and power and glory like you cannot imagine, causing you to want to fall on your face and worship him. This is your best friend that this is happening to. Right, John, he lived these things. He was there. He saw. He heard Jesus say that he came to redeem the world. He, he heard these things, and, yet he, and then he saw his friend, after saying these things, go get butchered on a cross. He was standing there watching him die, right? And then, of course, three days later, he saw his best friend again. As he had risen from the dead, he saw it. And that's why he says there, if you look at verse 1, he says, that which we have heard, which we have seen, which we have looked upon, which we have touched. He's describing personal experience. What, he says, I, we have seen it and testify to it. I am an eyewitness. I saw it happen. These things happened. My best friend was God himself. God became a man. And that man was my best friend. I knew him. You know, in ancient cultures, you have other stories of gods becoming men. So, for example, Zeus, right? He would regularly come to earth so that he could kind of manipulate the world, manipulate people in his favor, maybe seduce women. That's what he was doing, you know. It's, but, um, but there's something very different about the gospel stories. There's something completely unique. And there's... Uh, two things. One is that all the, all the Jesus' disciples, all the witnesses to these things were Jews. And the Jews had a very clear idea from their Old Testament that God and the creation were separate. That's why you have, right, in, in uh, Exodus 32, when they build the, the, the golden calf, they weren't just create, like inventing a deity. They were trying to make a form of God. And they are punished very harshly. That is a big no-no. God does not become an idol. Like God and the creation are separate. You do not make something that, try, you don't try and imitate him with created things. Like they knew this very clearly. They, it is not a small thing for a Jewish person to say that Jesus is God. It is not a light thing. 
And yet, you have all these people saying that he is. Well, the second thing is that they didn't believe that God had taken the form of a man, as if he's like a shapeshifter, right? He becomes man for a little while, goes back. and what? No, Zeus was a shapeshifter. No, no. They believed that God be, actually became a man. Not that he became like a man. Not that he looked like a man. It's that he was a man. Right? That's what he says. Um, that which was from the beginning. He's talking about God, right? The word of life, the life, the, this, this eternal thing has become manifest, has become a human being, has become a man, Jesus Christ. There is no other religion that believes this. The word incarnation, that the root of that word um, is where we get the word like carnal, like fleshly, or if you study Spanish, the word carne means meat, like right flesh. Incarnation, God enfleshed himself. He became bones and muscles and like water weight and like he became these things. God himself became a man. And John says, guys, I saw it. I touched it. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that these things really happened. But why would John start this um, sermon letter? Why would he start it where he's like he's trying to provide certainty for the people, for his people. Why would he start it with this, the incarnation? Well, because he, there's a sense in which if you can grasp, wrap your mind and your heart around the incarnation, if you can believe that God became a man, the rest is not that hard. Because if Jesus was God, of course he can heal people. Of course he can calm the, sea, the seas and the storms. Of course he can. He's God. If you can wrap your mind and heart around the incarnation, you can believe the gospel. You can believe these things. C.S. Lewis says, if, when, speaking of the incarnation, he said, if the thing happened, it is the central event in the history of the earth. Like, God becoming a man is absolutely crucial to any faith that we have. It is a crucial part of our faith. And if this thing didn't happen, just throw the whole thing out. If Jesus is not God, then our faith is nothing. I mean, this is a big, big deal. And if it is true, then it becomes the paradigm, the lens through which we can understand our lives. Now, a lot of people say, Guys, it doesn't really matter whether or not it happened. It's Jesus is an idea or, or even an ideal. Like he's, the, he's someone who loved well and acted wisely and kind of displayed humanity's potential. And he's just the, most, the best human being. Um, the New York Times a few months ago, um, they published an interview that they did with um, the president of Union Theological Seminary. Now, Union has flown the coop, flew, flew the uh, coop of orthodoxy long ago. Like, but, um, and so it's not surprising some of the things that the president of the seminary said. Um, but the things are actually indicative of what many people think of our faith. She said, um, speaking about the resurrection, she said, those who claim to know whether or not it happened are kidding themselves. That empty tomb symbolizes that ultimate love in our lives cannot be crucified and killed. 
Those who claim to know whether or not it happened are just kidding themselves. We can't know. And John says, no, I claim to know. I was there. I saw it. I know. I experienced it. You see, the, the, the historicity or the, the happenedness of the incarnation, of the, the death and resurrection, these things are absolutely central to John's faith. They're not symbols. They're not metaphors. They're real. They really, really happened. Some people, I'm sure like um, this seminary president, will say, hey, listen, it doesn't matter as long as you have a religious experience, as long as you're having this, you know, transcendent experience. And what this passage says is, hey, listen, it was a religious experience, but it was a whole lot more than that. It was a tangible, believable, observable fact, I saw it. Other people will say, oh, you know, I, I believe in science. I, believe in, I only believe in the things that I can see or feel or touch with my senses. And John says, yeah, I saw, heard, and touched the Jesus. I know. It was a fact. And it was also a religious experience. It was both. You see, um, our faith is not predicated on some feelings that people had 2,000 years ago. It is predicated on real events that really happened, and we have to wrap our minds around it. That's why we say here at Trinity that the gospel is not good advice. It is good news. It is news about something that happened. It is a proclamation about something that really happened, right? He says... Um, and, 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 it's, and it's in that reality that r- real life can be found for us. That's why he says here, um, the, he c- calls it concerning the word of life. The, in verse 2, the eternal life which was, what was, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. This is where life can be found to its fullest extent. In the real events of the gospel have you ever asked a friend um, about their new job or something, and they say something like, I was made for this. Like a nurse, you know, who just loves caring for broken bodies, loves caring for people. I was made for this. What are human beings made for? At their most basic We believe that human beings were made to know and to relate to God. That's why in Deuteronomy 30, which we studied two weeks ago, we've just been like kind of sitting in that passage. It's so beautiful. He says, that's why he says that if you obey, will obey God, you will have life. And that's because the fullness of life is, is, is found when we are living in a healthy and, and good and right relationship with God. And in the In the incarnation, God, who was in so many ways afar off, in so many ways we couldn't know him like we can now. In the incarnation, that God has become close and has become intimate, has become eminently knowable. Right? God became like us so that we could know him, and it is in that knowing that the fullness of life is found 
what would the effect be on our lives if we really believed this? Well, one of the things, there's many things, but one of the things is that it actually gives unique dignity to you and I as human beings. Um, you know, we have sayings, we say things like, well, I'm only human. Like, you know, it's kind of a negative view of our humanness. Like, well, I'm only human, I can't do everything. Stop giving me such a hard time. But how do we interact with our, our limits, our emotions, our bodies? How do we interact with them if the God of the universe has become a human being? I had a conversation once with um, a pastor that was really important in my life, and, um, and I was just expressing my inability. I was in school, and I was just like, you know, like, like I have so much that I need to learn, and I, like, I can't, I, I, there's no way I can do it. And he said, he's English, he said to me in his English accent, Jeff, it is a beautiful thing to be a human being. It's a beautiful thing to be limited because that means that you are a human being and God made you a human being and he wants you to be one. Like our God became a human. It is a wonderful thing that is full of glory and dignity. Do not despise your humanity. It's wonderful. Our God himself took on humanity. We have to wrap our minds around the beauty of that. That's our reality. That is the new reality that we live in. What does it look like to live in that reality? Um, here's one of the problems um, that we see. It's not, it's not just kind of secular people who think that um, the incarnation or these, you know, the different facts of the, of the gospel are... Um, they, that they don't, like, it's not just secular people that, thinks that they, think that they don't really matter. Like, that, that they don't really impact our lives. Like, ah, you know, it just, it's actually also religious people. We do the same thing, too. Lots of Christians do the same thing. Because sometimes you'll, you'll find that Christians only think that our faith or the gospel matters when we die. Like, hey, we'll just assent to something, you know, intellectual assent. Like, yeah, I believe in God. Yeah, I believe Jesus raised from the dead. But I'm good. I'll live the rest of my life however I want. It doesn't have to impact our day-to-day -day lives. But that is absolutely incomprehensible to John. Because if the incarnation happened then it must become the lens through which we understand every single part of our lives. It must become our every, you know, the happenedness, the reality, the events of the incarnation must be the center of our lives. And, and this is um, our second point, that what does it look like to live in that new reality? And John gives us two things. First of all, fellowship, that's from verse 3. And the second thing is joy uh, from verse 4. Now, fellowship um, it's kind of a weird word, and you, do you guys realize that only Christians use the word fellowship? Like, we're the only ones that use it? Like, no one else talks about fellowship except us. Um, but basically, this is what it means, and um, this is, I'm stealing this from one of my professors. He says, um, it is, fellowship is sharing the experience of a common yet transcendent bond, Sharing the experience of a common yet transcendent bond it is a deep relationship that transcends circumstances. And if you look at the second half of verse 3, John says, 
Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. The, the point of the Christian life is fellowship with God. You know, I've used this illustration before, but imagine an inner city baseball team. Um, they can't afford un- the uniforms that it will take to play in their rec league. And uh, so they can't play. But one of the a local business says, hey, you know, I see this need. They want to step in and sponsor the team. And they buy everyone bats, gloves, hats, you know, everything, you know, the the belts and all that. They buy the whole thing. And this rec team is like, awesome. They love it. It's so great. They got this new stuff. But, you know, they don't want to get it dirty. And so they, they go home and they never play the baseball at all. That, that would make absolutely no sense whatsoever. Listen, the, the incarnation, the, the crucifixion, the resurrection, your salvation Those are the uniforms that get you into the game, which is communion, fellowship with God himself. Right? Fellowship with God is the game. And John says that because the incarnation is real, he is positive, he is certain that he has fellowship with the Father and with the Son. Right? God became one of us so that we could know him, so that we could get in the game. And John feels an immense amount of certainty that this is possible and true. That's why he says, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son. He's certain. He knows. But this new reality doesn't just affect our our fellowship with God. It affects our fellowship with one another. He says at the first half of verse 3, so that you too may have fellowship with us. He wants fellowship among um, Christians. Remember our definition of fellowship, sharing in a common uh, experience of a common yet transcendent bond. Fellowship with God results in fellowship with one another. Where does friendship begin? It begins when you find common ground. Cecilia had this experience when Miriam was born. All of a sudden, it opened the door to all these relations, these wonderful relationships that she didn't know she had an, an open door to. Because moms know this, that like, they have an intrinsic common ground with other moms called motherhood. They have an intrinsic common ground on which friendship can develop. Well, Christians have an intrinsic common ground that is fellowship with God. This is to know God, to be saved by him. That is our common ground. And it's deep, intrinsic, it is who we are. It joins people together across cultures, languages, temperaments, class, gender, anything. It, it is a common ground upon which friendship, fellowship, community can be found. I mean, we say things like, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. But what about, like, the son or daughter of your father? Like, can he be your friend? Yes, absolutely. The child of my father is my friend. It's, 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 of course it is. he is. There's a common yet transcendent bond that we share with one another and with Christians all over the earth. It's actually, and it's actually in this fellowship, um, yeah, it's this fellowship that forms the basis for Christian community. Listen, friendship is the most enduring form of relationship, even in marriages, what, how are, where are good uh, marriages found? They're found in the friendship between the spouses, not in their sexual chemistry, in friendship. And listen, this has huge implications actually for single Christians because 
What John is saying is that Christian fellowship is not based on the children you have. It's not based on, you know, your, once again, your chemistry. All the things that single Christians do not have access to. It is, the most enduring form of Christian relationship is instead based on a common yet transcendent bond, which is a relationship with God, the God who became a man and died for his people. The church is too often stressed um, or focused on marriage as um, kind of solely the place, the only place where intimate Christian community can be found. And it's just not true. It is just not true. You know, John Stott says, the church, he says that the church has become content with a simple social camaraderie instead of a deep spiritual um, fellowship with God and one, with one another. Like, listen, single Christians, you have access to the deepest form of Christian relationship. And in fact, you know, we married people, we kind of need you to teach us how to do it. We need you to teach us how to have deep spiritual fellowship with God and with one another. It's incredible. It's, it's incredible. It's wonderful. It's wonderfully dignifying. If the, if the immediate effect of this new reality is, is fellowship with God and with one another, the ultimate effect of this new reality of the incarnation, God becoming a man, the ultimate effect is the completion of joy. He says in verse 4, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Listen, um, we all know people who go on stunning vacations to Europe and other places. We know people that have wonderful families um, who live in beautiful homes and beautiful suburbs and yet are on antidepressant meds. And listen, I know, you don't hear what I'm not saying, right? I know that there are good, really good medical reasons. I know depression is a serious thing, but there is a, a hopeless solitude in our world that these, like, vacations and the perfect family cannot remedy. And it's into that world that John says, listen, I want your joy to be complete. How can we have joy in this world? Well, John seems to suggest that it is in fellowship with God and with one another. What if we served a God who didn't tell us to just like grit it out for 80 years and then you can have it easy when you die? Like what if we served a God who didn't say, just say, hey, listen, if you'll just raise yourself to a higher level of consciousness close to mine, then you can escape pain and escape, you know, the, the trouble of this world. What if instead we, we served a God who didn't say, climb up the mountain to me, but instead came down the mountain. A God who becomes a man, a God who can suffer, a God who can die, that would be a God who could help us. A God who was like us, a God who knew us, a God who experienced the things that we would experience. Why would our God do that? The, the, um, the author of Hebrews actually speaks to that. This is what he says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame 
and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Any joy we feel in this life or experience in this life in fellowship with one another is merely a reflection of the joy that is to come. It is a glimpse of the joy that we will share with Jesus Christ. Behind every moment of joy is an aching for a completed joy. And that joy is promised to us by the incarnation, by Christ's death and resurrection, by his reigning at the Father's right hand even now, by the promise that our God will again come to this earth. He did it once. He will do it again. And it won't be for 33 years. It will be for eternity. And when he does that, he will remake this world. He will remake us. He will redeem humanity and redeem his world. And we will know him and he will know us. And our joy will be completed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, sometimes it strikes us as... Um, we, sometimes we just get hit by this. The things that we believe, they're not just something we believe, they're real. And God, we need to just sit in that and know that. We need, to, we need to actually trust that it's not, like we're not just having some religious experience. God, you really came to earth. And God, may that just affect, uh, impact our lives. May that just um, capture our hearts and our imagination. May that become the... Um, and the strength that we have and the joy that we have in this life as we seek to serve and follow you. In your name we pray. Amen.